This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 469. People are more empowered because the access to information has been democratized across the internet for better or worse. They're looking for options on their own because if they look at their situation, say my my organization is not devoting a lot of time to my improvement, I know I need to improve because things are changing all the time. I'm going to have to take ownership of that myself. If there's one thing I've grown to love in life, it's learning. Now, that hasn't always been the case, but ever since I fell back in love with books in 2003, I've been on a learning journey that has no end in sight, and that's okay with me. You might say I'm a lifelong learner, and that you're here probably means you yourself are a lifelong learner as well. One thing I've enjoyed learning more about lately is learning itself. In other words, learning how to learn. And that's why I'm especially excited for you to hear from today's guest. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the show dedicated to your personal and professional development, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading has to be a part of that plan. Of course, the obvious next step is to put what you learn into action. And that's what my note-making mastery course is all about. If you'd like to find out more about that, go to jeffbrown.me. That's also where you can go to get for a limited time a free membership to the Read to Lead community. Basic membership is free and includes access to exclusive content like weekly business book summaries and categories like leadership, productivity, mindset, habits, communication, entrepreneurship, learning how to learn like what we're talking about today, putting learning into action as well. Uh, curated resources like articles, interviews, apps, videos, and more. And of course, community forum access, your chance to interact with other people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. Again, all of that can be found for free with a basic membership to the Read to Lead community. To find out more, just go to jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. James McKenna is the Assistant Director of Professional Learning and Leadership Development for the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. He's also an award-winning educator with over 20 years of experience in learning design and development, inclusive practices, and teaching and training. His brand new book, which released back in January, is called Upskill, Reskill, Thrive, Optimizing Learning and Development in the Workplace. James, I'm delighted to have you here. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, I'm very excited to be part of this. Thank you for having me. I was uh, very interested to learn about your diverse background. You've done a lot of different things in life, but if I remember correctly, you've got a bit of a musical background. Is that right? Yeah. I have a BA in music with a focus in voice. And so I moved about 20 years ago from Boston to Los Angeles to be a rich and famous singer-songwriter. And since we're talking about a book about learning, you can guess how that art turned out. <laughs> As I was reading your book, uh, something caught my attention right away where you talk about this belief that all of us want to learn. And in fact, we're wired to want to learn. I had a, a conversation with one of my favorite authors uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm going to be chatting with him again in, in a month or so, uh, so. A guy named Seth Godin, who in a, a very kind gesture, reading my book before it released and showing a willingness to, to write a blurb about it, he came back to me and said, hey, I have some things that I think might make your book better. Are you interested in hearing them? And of course, I said, well, absolutely. Yes, please. And one of the things he recognized in my book called Read to Lead, uh, we hadn't addressed why people don't read, why more people aren't reading. 
And I'd love to get your take on this. He said, there's two reasons. One of them, he said, is people don't want to learn. He said, because learning means admitting you don't know something, which we're taught to avoid. So it's easier just not to learn and get back to work. So in, in light of that, I'd be curious to know what you and your experience and research says with regard to we all are ultimately wired to learn. We want to learn. Yeah, there's there's some stuff going on there. The, we're biologically wired for discovery. So our brains reward us for seeking out new information. That's why cell phones are so, you know, addicting because the, there's these little alerts like there's something new. Oh, I want to find out this new thing, right? And so we get these little dopamine hits. But we also get rewarded for working hard to meet goals and the we feel good about that. That's how humans have survived and thrived. So mm. our brains are here to seek out new information and we feel good when we put in the hard work. Um, mm. It's what so some scientists call the seeking system and, and Dan Cable in his book, Alive at Work, does some great job explaining the seeking system in death. But the thing that it's in the way of the seeking system and maybe going on with this, you know, what Seth was alluding to is fear. Mm. You know, it's a fear that we're going to be confronted with some information that does not jive with our personal beliefs or, yeah. or the work that we have done and might refute some things that we we've taken some pride in, but fear dampens the seeking system. If it's not safe for discovery, then I'm not going to discover. I'm just going to stay in my lane and do that. So I think that, you know, that's part of what an aversion to learning may be. If mm -hmm. if discovery is not rewarded, if it's punished, you know, if it's hindered, then it's not going to happen. Yeah. To your point, the other reason he said people don't like to read is people don't want to change their minds. He said, if a book is going to help you get somewhere you've and unable to get to on your own, it means changing your mind about something. And those two things, admitting we don't know something and that we might have been wrong about something, basically mean that we're going to be outside our comfort zone. So I, I totally, I totally see where you're coming from. Um, and talk a bit about the the progression you lay out with regard to the sort of the learning spectrum. This this novice to uh, self directed to expert. This was really intriguing to me. Uh, I see some of myself in years past being a self-directed leader when I was at a traditional job and, and sort of not knowing these terms at the time, but sort of setting a goal of being an expert learner, not just a self-directed learner. And so that was very fascinating to me. Talk about the progression there from novice to then to expert. Yeah, it's this three-part continuum. So not, let's start at the beginning of novice learning. And so these, these aren't like permanent states of being or necessarily identities. It's sort of ways of operating. So when you're operating as a novice learner, it's, it's being very passive. So the novice learner waits to be told what to learn, learns only what's prescribed to them, and only uses the materials explicitly provided. It's a very much like a just tell me what I'm supposed to do mode of operating. Mm. Self-directed, you know, folks will talk about all learning is self-directed, right? We're making conscious, we're making these conscious or unconscious decisions to learn. And as much as you might imagine that you're taking ownership of your learning and you're seeking out learning that's important to you, you may be engaging in different sources, like podcasts or videos or books, and then sharing or applying those in ways that make sense to you. So when you're operating as a self-directed learner, you have the will to learn and the willingness to apply that, but at your own discretion. And you may not necessarily have the skills for learning because a lot of these are top things. There are key learning behaviors 
and understanding of you know the the ability to vet different resources and stuff like that, and understanding if what you're you're learning or what you're seeking out is working for your own improvement. So you certainly got the motivation, mm. right, and a goal. But there are some specific skills around learning that have to, that have been paced to take you to the next level. Mm. So expert learning is that next level. It's when you're, you're taking ownership of your own improvement and the learning behaviors necessary to take that performance to the next level. So you see that learning is something that you do. It's not just done to you like a novice. <laughs> mm. But an expert learner is able to engage in the behaviors and understand the conditions that best support their learning. They can vet sources of information that will be most helpful and reliable, as well as the format that will best allow them to engage in that context. So people understanding like, you know, I really want to learn this topic and there's a great book about it, but you know what? I think I'm going to need the audio book because looking at the schedule of my day, it will be a lot easier for me to listen to this or another context, and I do this all the time, where I look at some books and, and I say, hey, these are ones I want to take a lot of notes in. I need to apply this. I'm using the Kindle version because I like the way it t- I, I can take notes in that I don't like to mark up books, right? <laughs> um, but other things might have a lot of technical stuff and a lot of graphs, you know, so I'm, I, I need to look at those. Where other ones, well, this is conceptual. I can get by on an audio book because I'm really thinking about the big picture, not understanding some key figures and tables and statistics where I might want to have that at print, right? And, and be able to flip to it quickly. So they strategically leverage that new knowledge as well. So they know how to take that and apply it to measurably impact their performance in ways that not only benefit them as a self-directed person, but also how does that help my team? How does it ultimately help the organization, right? So I like to say that expert learners have the will and the skill and the ways to learn and improve. And so when there's these ways of operating, you know, I talked about what the learner needs to do. You also need the context that allows you to operate in that way. So you might have all these great intentions and skills, but if you don't have an emotionally safe context to apply learning, Mm. right? Like we just talked about, or you don't have the time or you're not provided access to the, the resources that you need to learn the content, it's impeding your way. It's sort of forcing you back into a different level of operating, at least for learning that content, because the environment is putting up barriers between you and operating as an expert learner. Mm, I love that. And and as I've read your book, uh, this portion of your book about this, it, it really, I realized, is going to inform how I think differently about some of the things I'm teaching, the courses I'm creating, the the cohorts uh, that I'm leading. And it's been very, even though I haven't had a chance to apply it yet, I can already see how it's going to improve those experiences for the people on the other, on the other side. Um, what are some of the ways that learning looks different in the modern world of work versus maybe how it looked a decade or two decades ago? Deloitte has done a lot of work around this and they, they had a report from the Josh Burson Center there. If your audience knows Josh Burson, you know, sort of really well-regarded person in the world of HR and learning. He has a center at Deloitte and they they came up with this study around modern learning at work and they learned a lot of things. And one thing that we've learned is that people are pressed for time. They report they have less than 1% of their time formally dedicated to learning and improving. This blew me away. This is the statistic, I believe, where you, you broke it down. It, it equates to, I think, 24 minutes in a 40-hour work week. Is that right? Yeah. 
that's I mean, that's not allowing for a whole lot of of improvement. Right. And that goes into a paradigm of what we think l- the relationship between learning and work is. They Sometimes learning gets put in a box. So the official box for that learning is about one percent when, in fact, you know, one of my mantras is work is learning and learning is work. So we're learning at work all the time, whether or not it's formally, uh, you know, supported and, and acknowledged as work. But we're also that learning is work. We have to be intentional about that. And it's learning can be hard. It can be messy. It can be scary. But they're, yeah, they're, they don't have a lot of time for that you know, in, in many organizations. And again, these are generalizations, not like this is what it's like for everybody. Another term they use is being untethered. So uh, you see this people are, they're working in teams, but often those teams are in different regions and different time zones. So they have to figure things out often without the ability to like look to the person next to them like, hey, how do I do this? They have to do that digitally if they can. And it also makes it hard for organizations to to develop their people in a remote context. It narrows the the the, the opportunities and experiences that they can provide. People have to be collaborative. So even though they're untethered, they they work in teams and they have to learn how to get along and learn and work together with other people. People of different generations, different cultures, ethnicities, belief systems. People who are working in different contexts, mm. you know, understanding that like the way my boss allows m- me to work in my space may not be the same way it is working for someone else. But they know they need to be they need to learn from others. So people are going out and they're building their own personal and professional networks so they can get the support that they might not get in their normal work context. Like I alluded to earlier, this idea of being on demand, you know, we're learning on our phones, we're learning on our devices. People want that information now. So learning that is prescribed in a particular time, say, oh, we've got a two hour session this day or a training workshop. People might not have the time or the, the alignment of timing to access that. And even if they do, they say, that's great. I, I don't need it 30 days from now. They need it now. So they're used to saying, I can't wait for that. I need to go find out the information now. And finally, people are more empowered because they've been, the, the access to information has been democratized across the internet for better or worse. They're looking for options on their own because if they look at their situation, say my, my organization is not devoting a lot of time to my improvement. I know I need to improve. As things are changing all the time, I'm going to have to take ownership of that myself and make sure that I can I can upskill and reskill and make sure that I that I'm a viable not just now but in the future. So again, these are these are themes, but they give us an idea of the challenges and the opportunities that modern work and learning can present. Share a bit about sort of what drives the book this this concept of universal design for learning and and unpack that if you would, James, how it's uniquely useful in reaching today's modern learner. So universal design for learning and it's it gets its name from universal design, which is an architecture term right. uh, that came out after World War II. And, you know, all these folks were coming back, and many now we had a lot more people with disabilities, but we didn't. We wanted them to still be able to engage meaningfully in the workplace, but the workplaces we had weren't physically designed for a broader spectrum of people. So I had to start saying, okay, how do we make sure that these spaces work better for people and all new buildings should be more, what we could say, born accessible, that they consider a broader spectrum of humanity in the design so that 
you know, not just one type of person is able to operate and thrive in that environment. So universal design for learning takes that. And it's a research-based framework that comes from this nonprofit in Massachusetts called CAST. And it's a research-based framework for fostering and supporting expert learning in any context. So universal, we're thinking about a broad spectrum. Design, we're being intentional about how we think about learning and learning as, you know, meaningful uh, behavioral change, right? And so what they did is they've taken decades worth of research in cognitive neuroscience and psychology and woven them together in a way that allows us to leverage all this research in meaningful ways to apply what science has told us about how we learn and motivates us. I first discovered universal design for learning back in 2015. I had just finished a doctoral program on ed leadership and ed psychology. So how we learn and what motivates us. And and soon after I was asked to create a blended learning course around universal design for learning in its original context was mostly K-12 education. And I looked at this complicated framework, but to me, with the background and research, I said, this is all the stuff I just spent three years learning, but it's woven together in ways that we can apply Mm. because what we do know is that there's usually a pretty significant gap between when science figures out something will work and when it actually gets implied in the field and especially when it gets applied effectively, Mm. right? There's all these different theories and constructs, but how do I take that and actually use that in a way that's manageable, that's intentional, and that is impactful? And, and this addresses too, James, does it not the problem that you would otherwise find yourself in? And that's trying to create something unique for every learner, which is impossible. And you don't always know going in different learning styles and all that sort of thing. So this this addresses or, or sort of takes that head on. Am I, am I right? Yeah. And one of the things we understand about, about people with this cognitive neuroscience and functional MRIs is that everybody learns differently. And beyond this idea of you know, visual, auditory, kinesthetic learners, that we're absolutely unique in the ways that we learn. And that uniqueness changes over time. So it's based on not only our talents, our interests, our experiences, but what's emotionally moving in us that day, how we interpret the context around us, who we're learning with, what we think of the space in which we're learning. All those affect the ways that our brains interact with the learning content. And so learner variability, everybody's unique. Well, if I was there charged with supporting learning, are you telling me I'm supposed to come up with an individualized e-learning course or a workshop for every single person? No, that's, that's, I know there's a lot of promising stuff around AI and we talk about personalized learning, but personalized learning is usually like curated content rather than truly individualized experiences. Mm. But what if instead of thinking that you have to individualize it for the person, you make the experience flexible and supportive enough that they can individualize it for themselves? Ah. You allow them to adjust it to what their needs are, to what their purposes are, and their context. Mm. Um, a great example of if I step out of the learning space and back to the architecture, the idea of a curb cut. So a curb cut, those ubiquitous ramps on street corners everywhere, right? ramp, whatever you want to call it. Someone might look at that and say, well, the reason we have that is for a person with a mobility issue in a wheelchair. Sure, legally, that may be it. But who else do they work for? They work for me when I was pushing my kids in their stroller. 
Mm. Or if I was pulling a cart or pushing a, you know, a two wheel dolly, or if I'm on my bicycle, it works for a whole bunch of people. Now the designers who put that in, they don't know who exactly is going to come and use that, but they do know that there will be people in the world that have a challenge going from one height to another in a short distance. And how could they make that better for them? They don't know when they're going to need it. They don't need to know why they're going to need it. They just know it's needed. So we go back into the learning space. How do we think about where people can often get hung up in the way that they emotionally interact with the learning? They get, you know, they get engaged with it. If they make sense of it, they apply it and say, okay, what is getting in the way there? And what could we put in there? A great example is the closed caption. Mm. People look at the closed caption and they say, well, that's, you know, for a person with a hearing impairment, you know, when they're thinking usually some of a biological impairment, you know, the deaf or hard of hearing. Now, I was recently at a conference, a training conference, and I use closed captions as part of my presentation. You know, a lot of Google and PowerPoint that lets you put closed captions in real time below your slides. And so why do I do that? I don't know if there's going to be someone who's deaf of hard of hearing, but I can anticipate there might be. But I also know that having experience, sometimes you're sitting next to a chatty person. (laughs) Or sometimes if if the speaker is like me and gets nervous and is over-caffeinated and they speak real fast, the captions can help, especially if you're a language learner, you might be sitting next to a vent, whatever, that hearing, you know, just relying on the speaker's voice might not be enough for you. And the captions are there. And the thing about the curb cut and the captions, they don't get in the way of anybody. So they're there for everybody and they hinder nobody. When we think of our learning environment, we often, I, I at least often default to you know our immediate surroundings, the condition of the space that we're in. Like you, you mentioned a moment ago, maybe there's a chatty person, maybe there's a, a loud air conditioner unit I'm next to, those kinds of things. But when it comes to creating a solid learning environment, it's really about a lot more than just the immediate surroundings. And that's certainly important. You know, You need to have a space where you can reach all the things and physically use all the tools that are available to you. So if I'm in a space and I have a neurological challenge and you put the keyboard and mouse in front of me, yeah, they're there and they allow me to access the learning. But if I can't use those tools, that's it's not really, you know, this is basic levels of accessibility mm. and the information has to, and the space has to work for me. But also I've talked about emotions. What's the emotional space in which this is operating, Right. You know, what is what is the pace at which this is? All that is part of the environment. You know, the context in which the information is being delivered. Is this a, a, a learning that's going to be collaborative or individualized? Collaborative can be very motivating for some and very unmotivating for other folks that are you know more introverted or they have a particular relationship or, you know, poor relationship with some of the other folks there. Like, I don't really want to engage in this conversation with them. Mm. So you'll hear this a lot, folks working in equity spaces. There's a lot of work around not just the physical place and whether or not the food is good, but, you know, people have comfortable chairs, but how emotionally safe and prepared are they to be able to real meaningfully engage and learn and learn from each other? And so I think it's, it's really important. And you don't know that, especially in this untethered world, in this, you know, very dynamic space, you have to understand that where you're maybe thinking up this environment is not the same as where someone is going to experience it. 
So it's understanding not just how do I deliver this content, but what is the space in which people are going to receive that? You know, maybe even the time of day. You know, I'm very conscious if I'm giving a conference presentation or a webinar saying like, this is coming after lunch. People may have been on their feet or it's just later in the day. Is that the right time? You know, what what kind of presentation does that have to be? Mm. Dan Pink has the great book about when, about the science of timing, and that can be very important as well. Yeah, I've read that book. Great, great book. If we manage to identify potential barriers to the environment, and and you could you could respond to this either from the vantage point of the instructor or the instructee uh, or both. What are some specific steps we could take to then tackle those potential barriers that we've identified? I think once you've identified them, is thinking about well. Are they necessary to be there, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a physical space that does not work for people, we have to use that space, mm-hmm. right? Or a particular tool that we're using or, or software. Is it necessary that we use that? If the answer is yes, then we have to find ways to make using that work better for more people. If the answer is no, okay, let's see what else we can use. We either eliminate the barrier or we find ways to mitigate it. And, you know, that may be offering people different options and support. So, okay, we all have to learn Microsoft PowerPoint, but we understand that people come into that different space. So we offer people options. Here are some different tools, basic guides on PowerPoint. Here are some worked examples that you can reference that will help you better understand that. Here's a a list of shortcuts that allow people to better engage with that that not everybody has to use. Maybe I already know that stuff. So you're not forcing me to go through it, but it's there if I need it. You know, if I kind of, you know, I can't forget that one shortcut. I've got Mm -hmm. something there, right? Or I feel like I really understand this, but I can always learn something from some, someone else has done it. So let me still look at those examples anyway. It'll allow me to try something new. So Mm -hmm. giving options and supports and calling those out to the learners so they know where they're there, they -hmm. know how to use them and it's safe to use them. You know, if we think about, I brought up that broad spectrum of humanity and, you know, <laughs> the statistic is one in five people in the workplace have a disability. It could be physical, neurological, psychological, right? Two out of three of those aren't going to tell you mm. because they think there's stigma, because they think it's none of your business. For whatever reason, calling out for a specific support that supports my disability, having to ask for that and often put a spotlight on me. And I might not ask for the supports that I need, but if you offer them to everybody without saying you need permission to use this, you get disability. Sometimes let's say a support is like, these folks need a break, right? Everybody needs a break. And I don't necessarily have to tell you why, if it's a (laughs) medical issue or emotional thing, that we just offer that out to everybody that, you know, take your breaks as you need them and people can take them or not take them as ways that work best for them without spotlighting themselves. Mm. And so it's really thinking about what barriers can we reduce? What options can we provide people so they can make the decisions that work best for themselves? How do we remove as much friction out of the process as possible? Think about Amazon. I mean, what do they do? They give you options on how you find the content, how you pay for it, how you pick it up, where you get it. They don't care as long as you get what you want. That's all you want. So you get to design uh, the that buying experience in the way that works best for you. Mm. 
You mentioned empathy, you mentioned expectations, you talk a bit about ownership with regard to fostering expert learning in particular, that end of the spectrum. How does this tend to manifest itself uh, in real life? What does it look like when those three things come together, empathy, expectations, and, and ownership? Well, we talked a bit about environments and, and the need to understand the environment and the context in which somebody's learning. That takes empathy. You need to, as best you can, go and see what it is like for people to learn. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation uh, with a person in the restaurant space. You know, he's leading a team and designing this great content, but then he went out in the field and went to where they were learning it and found that largely these were old terminals next to an oven in a corner, realizing, wait, this is the not the best context, I don't care how good the content is, this is where they're trying to learn it. We need to think about this, this delivery a different way. How do we shape the environment better? You know, experiencing it the way the learner does, put yourself through that experience. Talk to people. You know, what is it like for you to learn? The more that you can learn, you know, my background is in education and I work primarily with students with emotional and behavioral problems. Regular school had not really worked for them. Mm. But I would go home and I'd up with this activity and I'd say, they're all going to love it. And you know what? You didn't all love it <laughs> because they're not all little me's. Mm. They're each little unique them's, you know, and, and they experience it differently. Mm. And so it's going to understand the different perspectives and the different challenges that people have. So you can design for that. You can't design for a broader spectrum if you don't know what exists within that spectrum. So empathy will look like dialogue and co-creation of learning with learners and learning environments as we better understand the people we're trying to serve. Mm-hmm. Expectations. That looks like if we think about that, if we have some sort of perception of who can learn and who can't, then we start to you know selectively offer opportunities to learn to the people that we believe can and those that we believe can't, mm-hmm. right? Or if we have to, you know, if we're mandated to teach everybody, we will tend to do the things that help people learn only for the people we think can learn. So expectations work. There's a lot of work around this. They call it the Pygmalion effect. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, as Henry Ford said, if you know, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> it's because if I don't think you can learn, then less likely to engage in the behaviors that'll help you learn because what's the point? Mm. It's a waste of my time. And then you don't learn, and I'm like, see. I was right, right? But having greater expectations is, it looks like instead of waiting for someone to show the the ability or the traits that you think can lead to improvement and then giving them opportunities to improve, it's giving everybody opportunities and support to improve so that they can then build their ability. That's what a, a more inclusive learning environment looks like, learning and working, right? Because that learning leads to more opportunities. If we build capacity, then we get tapped for different work and for promotions and all those different things. And finally, the ownership piece. Ownership is is big and it's scary because traditionally, if we think about, I'm responsible for other people to learn. It's very easy for me to be very proud when when they show signs of learning and improvement. And I can say, look at look at that. But when they struggle, that's that can be threatening. And I might be more likely to say, like, I taught them the stuff. I don't know. That's on them. Or the managers <laughs> didn't help or whatever. Yeah. The goal is that they get better. It's not about, well, I did my part. 
And so if we understand that there are barriers in the environment, it is our responsibility, but it's also empowering to say there's stuff in their way and I can do something about it. I can better help them by getting involved with that. That doesn't mean everything is within your control, Mm. but certainly many of the things that are not within your control may be within your influence and they're under the control of somebody else. So I look at ownership as it's not that you are responsible for solving every problem, but you take the, the, the responsibility to make sure the problem gets solved. And so when we think about these all together, we understand that there are different types of people and we all we want them all to learn. So we offer flexible opportunities and supportive paths for everyone to learn. And then we make sure that we are their partner, listening to them, providing them with what they need and, and collaboratively addressing barriers so that everybody can be their best selves. Mm. This is a fascinating discussion and, and one I could continue for quite some, some time, uh, but I can't. And I know you can't either. So let me ask you, why don't you dedicate a chapter to making an emotional connection, one to making an intellectual connection, a strategic connection, uh, anything about any of those chapters or anything else about the book that I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure we know or, or walk away with? You know, I've alluded to these different things around emotion and it really ties into what's necessary for meaningful learning. And I use this analogy, and I hope this helps people understand the interrelationship and these can't, these things can't be addressed in isolation. One of my many things that I did as I was in the Navy, and in Navy boot camp, everybody has to learn about fire because fire is the biggest enemy aboard ship. So every sailor wants to understand how fires start and how to stop them. And so fire needs three things in order to exist at all times. It needs oxygen, heat, and fuel. Okay. They call that the fire triangle. And just like a triangle needs all three sides to still be a triangle. If one side is removed, say we take away the oxygen, the fire dies. If we don't have it in the first place, it never starts. So right. learning has its own triangle. We all need a why, an emotional connection to learning. We need a reason to be interested. We need a reason to keep going and put forth our best effort, especially when it gets hard. You know, we said learning can be messy and we need a why that connects to our own purpose. And we take ownership of that. Right. And it's like, look at what I did and what could I do next? That emotional piece. Mm. We also need what? We need an intellectual connection. So you get interested. I need something to get interested in. So I need some sort of information. And that information has to come to me in a way that I can take in through my available senses that I can then make sense of. And then I can connect to what I already know and what I want to do. And the third part is strategic. This how we need a how we need to do something with this new information. We need to be able to interrogate it. We need to share it with other people. We need to apply it to solve a problem. And so what science has showed us about the, the brain is that there are three clusters of networks in the brain devoted to why, what, and how. And so what universal design for learning does allows us to always think about how do we keep people supported in the why, the what, and the how. And it's it's important to understand that these are working all the time. If, if people go, if they read the book or they just look up UDL, they'll see that there's a principle of engagement on the left. That's the why. Mm. In the middle is the principle of representation. That's the what. And on the right is the principle of action and expression, the how. And folks may, and this is common, look at that and say, oh, I think of it as a left-right progression. First, I get them the why, then I give them the what, then I give them the how. 
But we need those all the time. It's not a relay race. It's a dance. Mm -hmm. They're always working with each other. And so that's important for us to understand is always thinking about not just what do they need to know, but why do they need to know it? Why is it meaningful for them? How do I make sure that I show my expectations? I make sure they feel like they'll be successful and I give them a meaningful way to apply it. It can't just be some esoteric, oh, that's nice to know, but what am I supposed to do with Mm -hmm. this? This is how you do it to help you do your job, help your team do their jobs and help the whole, all of us win. Well, over the course of your career, and I know it's a varied one, what's a favorite book or two that you like to recommend to others? If you had to just pick a couple, what would they be? This is hard because I I love to learn. And so I'm (laughs) always getting books. My wife's like, another thing from Amazon? Really? But I would say the first one that changed the way I think about learning at work was this book called Turning Research into Results by Clark and Estes. It helped me better understand the challenges of workplace improvement, that it's not just like, well, you just train them and then stuff happens, right? (laughs) Not everything can be solved by training. And then training won't work unless people are supported to apply that training to their work. So that one is is a great one. There's a lot of thinking about workplace learning as an ecosystem. It's not just one individual design or asset, but how do all these pieces come together? And I find this concept to be highly coherent with UDL, this idea of of having flexibility and options for people that fit their context and their needs. So two books, Design for Modern Learning by Lisa M.D. Owens and Crystal Kadakia is a great book. Also, The Modern Learning Ecosystem by J.D. Dillon. I actually would recommend both of them because I find them to be very complementary rather than redundant or conflicting. So I don't think you say like, well, you're doing it this way or this way. I think they mesh together really well. Mm. The one that I would say has had the most impact on me in my professional and personal life has been a uh, book by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin that are uh, former Navy SEALs and a mm. business consulting company. It's called Extreme Ownership, How Navy SEALs Lead and Win. So I talk in the book about how learning and development and managers are taking ownership to those barriers of learning. So this this book really helped me move past to think about what I can't control and say, stop making excuses. If mm. you can't control it, influence it, take ownership of the solution. Right. Mm. And that's been very powerful for me. Those would be my you know, most formative books that come to mind. I've, I'm really looking forward to asking you this last question in light of, of what you do. I mentioned some of my online offerings. One of those is a cohort I started teaching almost a year ago called Note Making Mastery. And I walk mostly uh, knowledge workers through personal knowledge management and how to better collect and capture the things they want to remember and internalize from the content they're consuming and the tools involved uh, and the importance of keeping everything in one place to connecting new ideas to existing ideas and organizing those ideas to synthesizing and distilling things down and allowing your own thoughts and insights to interact with with what you're learning to finally putting that out into the world in, in some way. It could be publicly or it could be in a presentation or work, what have you. So it's sort of this collect, connect, crystallize, create sort of process. I would love to know in light of what you do and the content you consume and the books you read, whether it's books or podcasts or articles and whatever, what are some of your practices for making sure that the things you want to do something with or remember or use in your work actually gets used in your work? I like to keep you know the information that I think is important. I'd like to keep it as close to the work as possible. Mm. 
So I have lots of books, but the books that are closest on hand are the ones that are going to help me in what I'm doing during the day. And also the thoughts of that, rather than I don't take book notes in a notebook, I either use stickies or in a Kindle, I use digital notes. So I keep the notes closest to the content. So when mm. I reach for that, I also have my notes you know, compacted together. It's, a, it's an evolution for me. If I'm thinking about things I'm exploring or, or organizing uh, from different projects, I tend to have notebooks dedicated to each project. So when I'm working on that, I pull that notebook handy and I have it for myself. And when I think about, you know, lessons learned or stuff I want to apply, I keep visual reminders around. I have mm-hmm. I have a, a card that sits below my monitor that, you know, helps me remind me what can make me better uh, facilitating or interacting in a meeting. It's funny because I'm on a podcast, the top line says, talk less, listen more. Um, <laughs> Another one for me is uh, something I believe in is I got from the service is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So it doesn't have to be done overnight. It has to be done well. So how do we take small steps? Mm. And then I think finally, you know, when it comes to problem solving, a couple of things I do is I keep close by it. I have a whiteboard and I'll diagram and I, I whiteboards are not only great because it gives you space and it gets you up, but you know, none of that has to be permanent. So mm. it's kind of a safe space to make mistakes. If I have a notebook, what I'll do is as soon as I open up in the notebook, I'll make a scribble in the corner. The page is no longer perfect. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about keeping it perfect and getting all the words. right. I already ruined it. Might as well just <laughs> write down everything. I think it makes it safer for me. Yeah. And the final one, I guess would for distilling, along with that is go for a walk. Mm. I had a boss once who said, you take a lot of breaks. I said, I don't take a lot of breaks. I take a lot of walks. <laughs> What's the difference? I said, I'm thinking. For this person, work looked like you're in front of your computer the whole time. Right. Said, but a lot of what you've asked me to do is design and thinking and problem solving. I walk around and I think about that stuff. And then I come back to my computer or whatever space it is. And then I act on it. Mm. And I, I gave her the Stanford walking study to, to sort of back that up. But that walking piece is really helpful for yeah. me. Stepping away from the screen and just letting the the ideas ruminate. I love that. I'm curious to know how she responded to that. Well, it <laughs> good, was, good. It was it, it, to her credit, she was really like, it's just her experience coming from the field work looked a certain way. Mm. And now she had transitioned to a different sort of genre and getting used to the fact that work looked differently and that mm. it is okay that it looks differently. Ultimately, because she looked at the work I was doing, she was happy with that. So yeah. it's less about what the work looked like in process, how the sausage get made. Mm like the taste of the sausage at the end of it. (laughs) Right, right. Well, James' book, again, is called Upskill, Reskill, Thrive, Optimizing Learning and Development in the Workplace. James, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's it's been fantastic, and I, I really hope that the, the book helps your audience. To find out more about James and his work, to connect with him online, and check out links to the resources he mentioned today, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 469 for episode 469. And remember that putting knowledge into action, taking the things you learn and actually doing something with that information starts with your notes. Collecting ideas and insights, then connecting new ideas to existing ideas, and then crystallizing or synthesizing those ideas and combining those three steps, collecting, connecting and organizing, crystallizing and synthesizing to then create new and exciting works. That's what we walk through in Note Making Mastery. You can find out more about it at jeffbrown.me. And also more about 
a free basic membership to the Read to Lead community. Again, it's all at jeffbrown.me. I hope you'll visit soon. You'll recall that at the beginning of this year, I highlighted the six books I was most looking forward to in the first six months of 2023. Of the three that have already been released, two have been featured on this show along with conversations with the authors of those books. We go from two out of three to three out of four next week when we sit down with Maura Aaron's Mealy and talk about her book, The Anxious Achiever. Turn your biggest fears into your leadership superpower. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this time around. Hope to see you next week. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read. 